Hey y'all, my name is Cliff Watson, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 6 of Emerging, the official podcast of the Trout Limited Costa Five Rivers Program, brought to you by Sims Fishing Products. This is the first episode of a two-part series on the Lower Snake River and the four dams preventing salmon and steelhead from living in their natural habitat. On this episode, we talk to Eric Crawford, who is the North Idaho Field Coordinator for Trout Unlimited and very well-versed on the topic of the Lower Snake River. We discuss the problem at hand, why these salmon and steelhead matter, and most importantly, what you can do to help. We hope you enjoy the show, and if you have any questions, be sure to send them to fiverivers at tu.org. Thanks for listening. And have a great day. Hey there, Eric. Welcome to the Emerging Podcast. We're super grateful to have you here. So thanks for doing this for all our members and everyone involved with the Snake River Project. So why don't we go ahead and get started? I'll have you introduce yourself, where you live, where you're based out of, uh, what you do, and then a little bit about what you like to fish for and all that good stuff. Yeah, thanks, Cliff. Um, it's a pleasure to be here today and appreciate the opportunity. Uh, my name is Eric Crawford. I'm a field coordinator for Trout Unlimited. Um, the area that I work in is mainly in North Idaho, and I have two main priority campaigns that I work on. One is our lower snake campaign that we're going to talk pretty extensively about today. And then uh, in addition to some um, what we affectionately refer to as some upcountry public lands protections, uh, mainly in the uh, Clearwater Basin here in central Idaho. So those are my two primary um, campaigns that I work on. I'm based out of Lewiston, but I live up in Moscow, Idaho, on the Palouse. And so uh, as far as fishing, I am uh, admittedly an equal opportunity angler. Um, mm -hmm. I think I, you know, take advantage of all the opportunities that particularly my region has to offer. So anywhere from, you know, running down on the clear water um, before work, literally. Um, and my priority has shifted to um, the early part of the summer run a steelhead. And so when it's still warm out and, and uh, can fish for steelhead in September and early October, but then uh, also fish for fall Chinook as well as kokanee on the reservoirs. And I, I do just, uh, yeah, I'm an equal opportunity angler. And so um, take advantage of all everything that Idaho has to offer, both flat water and running water, deer, fly, you name it. Um, it's, it's kind of the way you need to operate when you live in Idaho. Yeah, exactly. What other mountain sports, I guess, do you take part in? Do you hunt, you mountain bike, or anything like that? Yeah, Cliff, so I am admittedly um, uh, an outdoorsman. I mean, I, uh, I hunt and fish. Those are my two <laughs> primary activities nice. um, when I'm not um, fishing, depending on what what's kind of in season, I guess you will hear. And that's the great thing again, is that the diversity of opportunity, particularly in this region throughout the year is pretty unbelievable. You know, you have, you know, that, that conflict, a little bit of a conflict, say in September, you know, and you mm -hmm. can wake up and say, well, geez, am I going to go steelhead fishing today or should I go uh, bow hunt 
for elk. Um, you know, and so it's a good problem to have. And then of course, as we go through the rest of the, the seasons, you know, um, even though I live in Idaho, um, I grew up in, in Northeast PA. And so I grew up, you know, on Idaho or on whitetail hunting. And so since I become, came here way back in the mid nineties, I I've still maintained that dedication to, to whitetail hunting and, nice. and, and still do it, you know, among other things. And then of course, like I mentioned, you know, you just transition through the seasons and take advantage of what you can. I have a young English setter that um, really enjoyed hunting with this this season and having ready access to Hell's Canyon, which is probably some of the best chucker hunting available in the West. It, it Again, it's just uh, opportunity abounds. And, and for your listeners, I think uh, it should probably be one of those uh destinations that everybody needs to get out to and experience so awesome awesome do you uh have you always been with trout unlimited or did how'd you get your start with them i guess yeah so uh i guess just as a little bit of background um on me um as i noted i grew up in northeast pa um in a fairly rural part of pennsylvania at the time it has um kind of gotten developed pretty extensively since then but i grew up on the bank of the delaware river um and and the upper portion above the delaware water gap and so um a really pretty incredible opportunity as a child to you know just literally jump down the river bank across the house and go um you know smallmouth fish or shad fish depending on on the season on the delaware but then also run up into the you know the the poconos which people are most famous familiar with as far as you know i guess mountains but brook trout fish and so that really rooted my interest in in the outdoors and uh and and at the time really unbeknownst to me conservation and so i initially uh went to college in upstate new york at paul smith's college and and got an associate's degree in environmental studies and then transitioned to mansfield university part of the pennsylvania state university um system and got a degree in fisheries um while I was pursuing that degree, um, I was, uh, you know, forced, I guess you could say it was a requisite for the program to, to do an internship. And, and I chose to go to Alaska and did a internship with the Alaska Fish and Game Department, um, primarily working on a sockeye, um, a sockeye program. So smolt monitoring, adult monitoring and a whole bunch of limnology work throughout southeast Alaska entailed you know being in float planes two to three times a week and going to some of the most wild places you know in in southeast alaska Mm -hmm. um i think reality hit um after that internship (laughs) that uh if i went back there um i'd be doing something similar but i really recognized the fact that i was in the field and my boss was not and so he was constantly at his desk and, and working on reports and stuff and and the other thing we had the good fortune to be able to, you know, use use a boat there. Almost whenever we were in town, uh, we could go out on the salt and and fish for salmon and halibut and go crabbing. Um, and then, of course, flying around in a float plane, you just have lots of access. Well, I realized as a as a recent college grad, I didn't have any money and I didn't have any boat, and I probably wasn't going to be paying for flights everywhere. So, I found myself in Idaho. Um, and so that was all the way back in 1997 when I, I showed up on, on in Idaho here and uh, started out as a uh, fisheries seasonal with Idaho Fish and Game. 
And so um, worked on a number of projects through that, just general fisheries management related stuff revolving around West Oak cutthroats. And then also, uh, you know, some warm water species work there, but a lot of work around bull trout and interactions with lake trout, particularly on um, Priest Lake. Uh, and so spent a couple seasons doing that and did some wildlife seasonal work. And then ultimately, um, I spent 20 plus years as an Idaho game warden and was blessed with seeing the entire state of Idaho through that career, um, finishing my career down in Lewiston. And uh, it just uh, turned out to be a good opportunity to uh, use all those skills that I developed as as a game warden, I guess you could say, and, and transition into uh, work in advocacy and engagement um, with Trout Unlimited. Nice. It's a little bit of an off-topic question of what we're going to talk about later, but I didn't realize you were a game warden. That's really cool. And I'm sure that we have a lot of our members that are maybe considering that field. So would you have any advice for a college student thinking about that path of becoming a game warden, working for the DNR, fishing game, whatever it might be in their state? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and part of it, you know, um, th- there's pretty specific requirements here in Idaho. And, and one of those is uh, a degree requirement. Um, the degree, degree requirement had spread as far as what is um, acceptable, you know, training. But um, in general, I think if you concentrate on anything um, with a natural resources background, either broadly or specifically either in fisheries and wildlife, that really sets you up really well. The other thing, and, and you heard me talk about this, is one this this practical experience I, I gained through through the process of going through college, you know, and even before I uh, even before I went to Alaska on my internship, I had worked for the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation uh, up at a Raybrook in the Adirondacks, doing a combination of a bunch of brook brook trout restoration work in some of those mountain lakes up there, but then also um, a bunch of lamprey work associated with um, Lake Champlain. And so those were seasonal jobs. And although, um, you know, I was away from home um, and at the time really didn't get paid that much, that was really, I think, that's what really opened up that door to opportunity. And so that's the one thing that I can really emphasize with with your listeners particularly mm-hmm is to really, you know, it, it's a hard thing to do to look look in the long term. But in reality, that's what you got to be doing to game it out your, your plan. And, and granted, I was fortunate. Um, you know, I think I was in the right place at the right time in a lot of these things. But I definitely had a mindset of where I wanted to go. Now, granted, it, it definitely, my mindset, I will admit, was not... Um, not about a career. It was right. more about adventure <laughs> at the time. Right. And so, but, but that's a great thing. If you're going to pursue a career in natural resources, um, there's a lot of adventure opportunity. You know, I mentioned, um, I worked, uh, seasonally as a wildlife technician as well. While I worked for Idaho fishing game before I became an officer and that literally entailed trapping black bears all summer out, you know, in the, the wilds of, of North Idaho and the Coeur d'Alene drainage and then later in the St. Joe drainage, you know, and, and all of these jobs entail, you know, living in a tent uh, every day of the week, you know, mm-hmm. out running, a, for lack of better terms, a trap line um, for bears if that was what I was doing or camping out on Upper Priest Lake. And so um, 
you know, you got to get out of your comfort zone. Um, one of the other things that I've found that is really, really important um, as far as those, you have your minimum degree requirements. And there are some things that a lot of us want to shy away from. And one thing that I really chuckle with, and and I used to do some recruiting for, for the department back at Paul Smith College, and was this idea of taking, you know, speech class. Many of us mm. don't like speech class. It's in, and we don't like public speaking, but I'm here to tell you, if you want to be a resource manager in, in some, some degree, I mean, that's what you do. You, yeah. you talk before the public, whether it's in a formal center or informal, and, and there's just a lot of things that you can really hone your skills on. And, and it's just really taking advantage of all those opportunities. Awesome. Well, thank you for that advice for anyone out there that's looking for it. So getting into the, you know, the topic of the Snake River, uh, I want to talk, talk about like where the Snake River is, right? Because when a lot of people think of Idaho, they think of the Mountain West. And when a lot of people think of salmon, they think of coastal regions, right? And Idaho is a whole state away from, you know, the Pacific Ocean over there. So where is the Snake River and, and how did the salmon get over there? Yeah, that's a really great Great observation, Cliff, and, and it's certainly one that really didn't um, wasn't apparent to me when I made my choice to originally come out to Idaho. Um, I observed it as the Mountain West. I was excited for the opportunity to um, hunt elk and 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 mule deer and and all these crazy species that we have here. But in reality, I got here and found out. Oh my gosh! Steelhead actually run all the way into 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 Idaho, you know. And at the time, I was in the Panhandle. It was a short drive down to the Clearwater, and it was literally at the end of that first season that I was out here that my old boss um, took us took us down in his drift boat on the Snake to fish for uh, to fish for steelhead, and uh, was blessed with that opportunity to um to catch my first steelhead although you know a hatchery fish uh, at any rate it was a it was a steelhead and really cemented that idea of anadromy and the role that the snake basin has and so so the big picture here is is that the snake is is the largest tributary to the columbia river most people should be familiar with the columbia um, roughly splits splits southern washington and northern oregon in half or divides those two states um, and so uh, the Snake River Basin, uh, the majority of it is in Idaho. There are portions, though, that are in um, uh, northeast uh, Washington and then eastern Oregon. But in general, I think the, the really important thing to understand about the Snake River and its contribution to the anadromous species, and, and when I talk about that, um, mainly talking about sockeye, steelhead which we have summer run steelhead which is a little bit different than what we see in the coastal species of winter winter run steelhead and then we have um spring summer and fall chinook runs in the basin our uh limited coho returns were extirpated although there is a return now that is mainly supported from hatchery production um specifically by the nez Perce tribe but historically the uh snake river basin represented 50 percent of the returning salmon and steelhead to the mouth of the Columbia. That 50% is 50% of 10 to 16 million salmon and steelhead returning. And that's a, a identified number by uh, NOAA, National Oceanic Administration. Administration, And so that is their best, best estimate. Um, so 10 to 16 million fish returned into the mouth of the Columbia historically. 
and 50% of those were Snake River Basin Salmon and Steelhead. So one of the most significant basins for the um, production of salmon and steelhead. That's incredible. That's a giant number of fish. I mean, that's yeah. that's magnificent. Yeah, yeah. and you you know, in today's times, you can't even can't even fathom that amount of fish coming back. But right. that's how significant that the Snake River Basin is. And so, you know, we go all the way from the Pacific, you know, and start at zero um, feet above sea level um, and travel. Geez, I think it's 300 some miles inland um, before you get to to Lewiston, which is at 907 feet above um, sea level. Wow! And then those fish migrate through the rest of the state of of Idaho, um, going up the limited portion of the Snake River that's still available. That is blocked by the Hell's Canyon complex, um, but. The real bread and butter is in the Salmon River Basin, where we climb up to you know 9,700 and some odd feet of elevation, where you see um, sockeye returning to, and to a lesser extent, summer steelhead, and then also um, steelhead or summer summer steelhead, and to a lesser extent, uh, summer chinook. So wow, yeah, so incredible. pretty incredible diversity of of habitats. Um, and it just can't be, uh, emphasized enough of how important the drainage is. And so you hear me talk about, okay, from the Pacific ocean, all the way to central Idaho and the sawtooths. Um, but roughly, you know, the snake river basin is about 48,000 square miles of, mm-hmm. of land mass to put that in comparison. Um, something I think a lot of people can probably relate to is, you know, the surface area of the state of New Jersey, Vermont, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island is roughly 45,000 square miles. Okay. Uh, so you, you really yeah. get a, 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 a idea of the massive size of the landscape we're talking about. Definitely, definitely. And just knowing how salmon work and how the, you know, nitrogen is returned to the ecosystem and everything when they die, that's probably a pretty integral integral part to maintaining that massive amount of acreage of, you know, of land right there. So there's a threat though, right? And I'd love to get into what that threat is and, and what's happening on the Snake River to prevent, you know, these 50% of 10 to 16 million, you know, salmon swimming up that river right now. Yeah, so the threat we refer to is a is an ongoing threat. Um, starting in 1963 with the development of the the Lower Snake Hydro System, and what we when we talk about the Lower Snake, we're talking about that section between the the mouth of the the Snake River with the Columbia all the way up roughly to Lewis and Idaho. It's about 140 mile stretch. Um, that um, section, the Lower Snake, was developed starting in 1963. Um, in the form of hydroelectric dams. Um, Four dams were placed um, throughout that that lower 104 miles, um, creating literally a 104 mile section of slack water, which once was riverine environment, conducive to uh, really great, uh, particularly Falschnick habitat, but just transitionary um, habitat uh, for salmon salmon and the other species, the, the other species of salmon and then steelhead, um, but now it is inundated. And so that, that development ended in 1975 with the completion of Lower Granite Dam. That's the most furthest upstream dam. Um, and so with that, you know, the Lower Columbia had already been developed into, um, 
you know, hydro system as well with the, you know, with the development of, of Bonneville at the bottom and McNary at the top um, for that section below the snake. And so during the development of all this hydro system, um, electric or, yeah, hydro, hydro dam development, we continue to see these declines in salmon abundance and mainly in adult abundance as they return back to go spawn wherever they uh, emerged out of the, the uh, gravel. And so that is the main threat, and that's where our attention is today. And so I think a lot of people are like, well, why, why today? Well, it, it, it's not just today. It has been going on since, you know, literally since these dams were – uh, considered for construction, under construction, completed for construction, all the way up to today because of these continued um, observations that, you know, the dams are not conducive to salmon and steelhead survival. Um, and so I think that, the, you know, one of the pivotal points um, earlier on in the 90s would have been the listing of sockeye salmon, which would be the first species to be listed in 91, followed by spring, summer, and fall chinook in 92, and later in 97, with steelhead following um, as threatened. So sockeye are endangered. The other species are all threatened um, under the Endangered Species Act. And so, that was a pivotal time when a lot of attention got brought to it, brought, got brought to the situation. And then since that time, you know, there has been a continued awareness of trying to figure out fixes to decrease mortality associated with the hydro system. Um, and we see that in a number of different ways, whether that initially was, you know, shortly after the dams were completed, they recognized that an undue number of fish were dying as juveniles, the smolts, as they outmigrated through the system. And so early on, the fix was, well, we'll barge them. And so mm -hmm. there's a smolt collection um, program down there that still is running today. Um, the idea was we'll collect them at these dams and then barge them all the way down through the system to reduce mortality. Um, that in and of itself has a number of um, uh impacts that affect their survival one you know you 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 have a lot of um straying occur among those species that are are barged um there is an, a, a pretty serious amount of mortality being barged through the system like that um and then of course disease from being uh packed into the barge and so uh, one species that's really susceptible to that there are sockeye because um if any of your 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 listeners have ever handled you know either a sockeye in alaska mm -hmm. or even a kokanee you know you just you really see like they can be descaled really really easy they're just not as hardy as some of the other species and so that ends up providing an opportunity for disease entry um and so yeah, yeah. so the other things were you know uh, offset this loss of opportunity with mitigation factors such as barging but then also um hatchery production which is a pretty big deal throughout the entire Colombian snake river basin and and those those were to offset these these historical runs but with an inferior hatchery product um and then they continue to to modify the dams um which that is ongoing today even they have changed the the aspect of the spill um you know, the forebay of the spill um uh and so that to reduce um mortality there um yeah and then there's you know a number of different 
predator control aspects to kind of mitigating for the dams and what they have provided for an abundance of predators, mainly smallmouth bass and walleye throughout the Snake and Columbia, but then also even um, seals and sea lions below Bonneville. And so, um, yeah, just a, a lot of things. And so right. how did we get here today and why is this such an important conversation now? Um, in February of 2021, um, Representative Mike Simpson, Idaho representative here, uh, uh, released a proposal after um, what um, evidently the estimate, you know, by his staff is anywhere between three and 500 conversations in the region um, with um, not only, you know, advocates and conservationists, but agricultural entities, transport entities, which is it's pretty important and we can go into that maybe a little bit later, but mm -hmm. the role that the Snake River plays not only in through electricity production, but then also agricultural commodity transport is pretty significant for here on the Palouse, the Camas Prairie. But um, Representative Simpson and his staff had these conversations and came up with this proposal to the tune of 30 0.5 billion dollars to um for the one the removal of the snake river dams but then and also to uh invigorate the economy and and redevelop infra infrastructure throughout the region and so that was really a, a real pivotal point um i think right now and where we are with this conversation today absolutely that's that's huge how has that been received by the people in the snake river area are they pleased to hear about that and i'm sure there's differences there but you know is there an overall general opinion yeah so um i wouldn't say there's gen a general overall opinion mm -hmm. um you know you have people that uh really really support it you know like myself mm -hmm. um and and for a number of reasons and i think the important thing is is that people need to be mindful of 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 tu and our uh our mentality and a lot of these things you know we are absolutely committed, you know, as a, a cold water fisheries organization, one, to restore and recover um, sacred basin salmon and steelhead. But with that being said, we are cognizant and considerate of um, all parties involved in this decision. And, and we strive to provide an environment where everybody comes out whole. And so, you know, that's one of the things that I do mm -hmm. kind of on a regular basis um, is have those conversations within the region. Um, you know, having been a, a game warden, I've had a lot of hard conversations. Yeah. And so uh, and I continue today, even as a, a field coordinator for Trout Unlimited, to have some hard conversations, you know, with people that, you know, are on the side of hell no. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and I think it's just a. You know, it takes a, a little bit of patience and a little bit of um, open-mindedness to understand where these people's positions come. Um, we're talking about impacts to livelihoods, but all of this is being addressed, whether it's in Representative Simpson's um, proposal and or um, future proposals to come out. So, um, you, you know, there's a bunch of different aspects to it and a bunch of different positions, but, you know, um, as the representative simpson's proposal has had time to soak if you will mm -hmm. i think people are kind of wrapping their minds around some of the opportunity that may be may be available to them that previously wasn't right well i think that's really good that that conversation is being had and that it's built into this proposal by representative simpson that you know we're going to remove the dams but we're also going to support the people that are negatively affected by the removal of the dams and that's something that sometimes gets lost in environmental debates climate change debates things like that so i'm really glad that's happening um 
in regards to you know how the dams will be removed and everything like that does obviously it has to go through but how long would that take right does do we know how long of a process that would be so I, I don't know if we fully understand how long the process will be. I mean, first and foremost, um, this literally has to occur by act of Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that is the first mechanism um, to to get the ball rolling, if you will. Um, but there's a bunch of things that really need to happen. Um, and I kind of hinted at this earlier. So um, there is a very significant transport uh, agricultural commodity transport industry on the Lower Snake. Um, the the Palouse region here that I live on, and to a lesser extent down on the Camas Prairie, um, just south of where I live, are, are very significant weed producing regions um, for the world, in fact. And so that consistently, that's where a lot of this wheat gets gets shipped is is to foreign countries. Um, and so uh, that, you know, has to be replaced, mm-hmm. you know, first and foremost, um, is, is that commodity transport. The good news is there's already an existing rail line mm-hmm. through the Lower Snake um, corridor um, that is a short line, not a main line, but links up to a main line um, that can gain access all the way to Portland and or um, other ports to, to the coast. And so um, with some modest upgrades in the infrastructure of that rail system, that could be a viable replacement for barging through through the, the hydro system. Mm-hmm. The other aspect is is the, the replacement of the, the energy that right. the Snake River dams produce. And so um, the lower four Snake River dams produce on average uh, 963 megawatts um, annually, um, which really accounts to about 4% of the overall Columbia um, power system, okay. the Columbia River power system, the, the, the entire region of the Northwest. Four percent. Yeah. And so um, even though it's not significant or it it doesn't sound like that much, um, they do play a bit of an important role for surge demand. So if we have, um, you know, an extended cold snap, um, you know, they can, you know, switch on to create a bunch of um, electricity to build those heating needs and or cooling needs if we have a, a a hot time in, in the summer. Um, and so, but <clears throat> the good news is through energy saving and emerging technologies throughout the basin, basin that 4% can easily, easily be um, replaced with a little bit of foresight and planning. It, it's a pretty simple task. Um, those are the things that have to happen first mm-hmm. before we even get to dam removal. And so um, once we get to dam removal, um, it, it, I, I, you know, Representative Simpson has kind of talked about it in his proposal, and I've heard him speak at a number of events. The removal of the four lower Snake River dams is actually quite easy. Okay. Um, if, if you were ever to look at the dam from the downstream side, um, people would notice that you, you consistently um, there's a powerhouse section and fairly consistently they're all on the right side for whatever reason. Um, and then on the left side, uh, first you have the powerhouse, then you have the lock system where the barges, um, go through, but then on the left side, it's earthen dam. Mm. And so these dams are not, um, not anywhere near, um, the, 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 the size of, of something like Grand Coulee or, um, 
you know, uh, one of our other other large national dams. Um, they are uh, fairly low dams. They provide no flood um, mitigating opportunities. Um, they are run of the river dams, and so they just don't have that storage capacity to provide for any kind of flood storage. And so it's literally pulling out rocks on the earth and earth inside and, right. and, and you would create a free flowing snake river. So, right. but a lot of these things have to happen first to get to that point. Absolutely. <clears throat> In regards to the, you know, mitigation <clears throat> efforts that have been tried so far, you know, it seems like a lot of them have failed or have at least not succeeded in the capacity we need them to. Right. So, you know, currently how do fish get above like, cause, cause there's the Bonneville dam, right. And it sounds like that's at the bottom of the Columbia. So how do fish get past that to even make it to the snake river or, you know, how do smolt come down the river and get over the Bonneville dam right now? Yeah. So we'll, yeah, we can pick any one of the, the, the eight dams that these fish have to navigate, but each one of them have, um, an adult ladder. Okay. Um, so if you, if you were to look at a, at a photograph of any of them, you would, you would pretty readily pick out, um, <clears throat> something that looks similar to an off ramp on an interstate highway, mm-hmm. uh, in, in a bunch of various configurations, depending on which dam it is. But literally it's just a stair step fish ladder, um, that w- the fish are able to work up and over the dam. And so that is the main mechanism for, uh, adult fish to return through. Mm-hmm. When we talk about out migrating small, um, one, they're out migrating at generally um, higher flows, so spring flows, flushing flows. So um, there's a couple different ways that they get through or over the dam. One is through the spillway, um, which in and of itself can create um, and cause a, a number of different uh, routes for mortality. Um, but that's one. There's a small bypass that um, the, the small are redirected. Um, and don't go over the spillway, but redirect it around um, through that system. And that also prevents them, hopefully, from going through the turbines. You know, originally, right. um, fish were going directly through turbines, and it would just chop them up. Right. Since that time, those turbines have been screened to prevent that, and then you get the small bypass. Um, and like I said, you know, there is the part of the small bypass is a, a collection for barging. And so those are the, those mm-hmm. are the ways they get they – get, uh, up and over or down and around. So, right. Right. <clears throat> I mean, there is passage, but the really important point is, um, is, you know, although there is passage, the associated mortality of the, of the hydro system is what is killing these, these fish. So not even, not just the interaction with the concrete portion of, of the dam, mm-hmm. but after they pass the dam, the, the complexities of navigating um, a slack water reservoir environment. One, they're um, using an extraordinary amount of reserved energy um, to get through the system that um, they did not evolve to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so not only are they using that energy while they're down there, but now here we have a situation of um, exposure to a number of predators, both um, pacifiers in the form of, you know, native um, pike minnow, but then non-native smallmouth mass and, and walleye um, are the primary um, pacivores. And then we have um, avian predators, you know, any any number of, of you know, osprey, gull species, um, cormorants. Um, and so 
what you end up seeing is just this capitalization uh, on on mortality through the mm. system where you end up with just fewer and fewer and fewer. And so um, I think it's hard for people to really understand that idea that, you know, most of the mortality occurs on juvenile salmonids as they outmigrate. Right. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. The, uh, I spent some time in Alaska as, as well. And when we have the small going out, they just fly down the river cause it's a freestone. Right. And I mean, it's like riding yeah, a roller yeah. coaster for them or a water slide, you know, but when it's slack water, they have to just propel themselves the whole way. I'm sure that's a huge waste of energy and it's, it's really tough yep. on the fish. So, yeah. So, so they evolved actually going down backwards wow. in, in, in through the, into the free flowing sections. Mm -hmm. But here we get into the slack water and now they have to swim through that environment. So, wow. um, again, any number of, of, um, mortality agents, you know, uh, that impact those juvenile fish, um, as far as the adults, what we see, you know, spring chinook are impacted by uh, pinnipeds, uh, seals and sea lions down below um, Bonneville Dam. But depending on that run timing and um, runoff throughout the basin, we have really started to see with the impacts of climate change, elevated um, water temperatures throughout the hydro system. And so, you know, more recently in 2015, almost 90 percent of the returning sockeye literally boiled to death in, in the lower in the hydro system because of the uh, elevated water temperatures. Mm. And so that creates a whole nother situation for returning adults. So yeah, it's a, uh, it, it's uh, sometimes people look at it as overly complicated, but mm. when you really break it down, it, it's really not that complicated, you know, in one form or another, the hydro system um, kills fish, juvenile or adult. Um, the solution, which is well, well documented um, that those mortality um, impacts um, through rigorous scientific study. Um, but the only solution is to remove the four lower Snake River dams to reduce that mortality. And, and we can get into what SARs are, mm -hmm. um, small to adult return ratios a little bit. Yeah. So in, in regards, you mentioned hatchery fish as well, and that sounds like another mitigation tactic. What's, what's the issue there and why, why aren't they the same as a wild fish? Yeah. So, um, in, uh, in 1983, uh, the Northwest power act was enacted by Congress. Um, part of this act, um, involved the mitigation for the impacts of, of the hydro system. And so um, one of those portions is to mitigate for lost opportunities, um, both recreational, commercial, and cultural. We talk about cultural, we, we're referring to Native American tribes um, that relied on these fish for, for you know, forever. Mm -hmm. um, and so today what we see um, is about, um, at least in the Snake River Basin, about uh, 30 million smolts are released annually into the system. Um, that's a combination of, you know, um, summer steelhead, all three species of, of Chinook, and then to a lesser extent, sockeye. Um, and what you see in those, those, I mean, and it's really important for your listeners to understand that those are there for opportunity. That's what they mitigate is that loss opportunity for those three things I identified, um, recreational, commercial, and, and, and tribal, cultural. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's what they're there for. They're not there to recover a species. And so um, what we see, though, is why they are um, not as um, 
not a replacement for wild fish is one, they haven't evolved um, the life history. They, they don't, they lack the life history. And when we talk about life history, I think a lot of people don't realize that, you know, uh, an adult steelhead may go spawn here in a couple months in, in some unnamed tributary. Its offspring may spend up to six years in freshwater. So that's a built-in survival mechanism, um, and that creates this, this opportunity for resiliency. And so even though a portion of that, that, um, that offspring may have outmigrated um, at year two, um, and maybe another portion in year three, but then all of a sudden we have a catastrophic wildfire in the system, mm-hmm. um, and then the rest of the year class um, perishes due to a bunch of environmental factors associated with that wildfire. Um, but what you have now are these these year classes that are already out migrated that may spend up to four years, say, for a steelhead out in the ocean. Um, and again, building in more resiliency. We just don't see that in hatchery fish. We see that, you know, you can see that across the board for all the salmonids. Um, there isn't that resiliency. Those fish are programmed to out-migrate one year. Generally, they return depending on um, if they're an A run or a B run. Um, that has to do with um, historically run timing um, is what that broke down. So um, B run steelhead are kind of the famous big um, Idaho Clearwater River steelhead um up over 40 inches just really big fish um they had a little bit of a different run timing compared to our a run fish which are much smaller and so um you just don't have all that resiliency built into these fish any longer and you you just have them all flushed out through the system at one time um and consistently you see um greater mortality um, due to that, right. that lack of, of resiliency and, and evolution as a species. So. Right. So you, you brought up resiliency there and I think it's a great point because I've heard salmon and steelhead are some of the most resilient species, right? And it sounds like we've done some serious harm, but if we remove these dams, is it very likely that, you know, they come back in full force and are able to be a successful species again? Yeah, yeah, and, and I'm glad you picked up on that, Cliff, because what, what we see here, and this is why the, you know, not only the, the size of the Snake River Basin, um, as I talked about earlier, but the importance of the Snake River Basin for the recovery of this species. Roughly 62% of the historic spawning and rearing habitat is still accessible in, in the Snake River Basin, in the in the Idaho portion. You know, you have other portions over in uh Eastern Oregon and Eastern Washington, the Grand Ron, the Emnaha, and some um, lower tributaries on the Lower Snake, but the the bread and butter, you know, is still accessible. The historic habitat is accessible um, and intact, um, with the exception, of course, passing all those dams. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that in and of itself is a recipe for success in in um, this long-term evolutionary resiliency that we just talked about. Um, and when we really start looking at this landscape and and, and what what that really means, we have places like the middle fork of the middle fork of the salmon, which is protected by um, the Frank Church wilderness. So you have this unbelievable wilderness setting that very, very little um, human manipulation with the exception of a few headwater, um, uh, situations, but 
in essence, it's still intact. Um, that can be said about the the Selway as well, which is part of the Selway Bitterroot. So we have these humongous drainages mm-hmm. that are pristine and are just there waiting for these adults to return to um, start the process all over and perpetuate these the species. And so that's why you know we as an organization are so devoted, and this is why it's one of our national priorities is to recover these fish with the removal of the four lower Snake River dams because of this incredible opportunity. Um, with that being said, even, even with all that, um, I think it's about, um, so it's 65. So by 2080, the prediction is the Snake River Basin will contain 65% of the available cold water habitat in the lower 48. Um, and so another big, big, important reason to remove these four dams is, is this unbelievable potential we have in the snake river basin yeah it sounds like it'll be a stronghold in years to come with climate change knocking at our door so in regards to trout unlimited and the organization as a whole what is tu doing at you know like the grassroots level where where you are in idaho so a lot of my effort um with the exception of, you know, the, the, the pandemic um, hitting, um, which kind of stalled a lot of things, you know, we're engaged in a lot of different ways. You know, one, as you mentioned, Cliff, is is in the grassroots realm. And a lot of that is through the education and engagement of our membership. Um, I spend a, a, a lot of my time, um, particularly since the pandemic hit, um, on evening Zoom calls, mm-hmm. um, presenting to our chapters throughout the Northwest to really bring this information to them so they can make an informed decisions and ultimately, ultimately engage their electeds, whether that's in a local, a local elected or uh, a state, state elected or even our congressional delegations. Um, and that's where we as an organization really shine. I mean, we have 300,000 members and supporters throughout mm-hmm. the nation that are really, really committed to cold water fisheries recovery and restoration. And here we have, you know, one of our national priorities. And so we, we can really bring that voice for these fish to the decision makers to make the right decision. Yeah. Um, and and so, yeah, that's, you know, and, you know, of course, you know, stuff like this outreach Mm -hmm. on, on podcasts, um, and a bunch of different like panel type of things. Um, uh, I don't know if, if many of your listeners were able to see our, uh, fall issue of trout magazine which was dedicated to the lower snake campaign but um find a friend that that probably has a a copy of that and uh take a look at it um really important issue and and a lot of things really to consider and i think we did a really fantastic job on that issue to really you know cover the breadth of of all the issues so Mm -hmm. so what can a, a five rivers college student do right you know we can we can definitely call our senators and stuff like that but who do you recommend we talk to and what do you recommend we tell them and then you know is there anything else besides reaching out to politicians and representatives yeah. So I guess, you know, I would start and I, you know, this has to do with any cause that you support, you know, do your due diligence and really learn about the issue. Um, and, you know, the good thing is, is that um, we have a really great landing page for this, the campaign and that's uh, to you.org forward slash lower snake. Um, and that's a really great place for, for your listeners to really start uh, studying up. Um, I'm sure that's the last thing they want to do is continue to study something, yeah. <laughs> but uh, maybe this is something they're passionate 
passionate about and uh and, and it might be uh, more important than some other uh, part of their curriculum but um yeah spend a little bit of time and, and and learn about the issues um you know we covered a lot of things today and um and literally that just scratches the surface so beyond that um you know i would have um you know within the the individual um chapters of memberships of, of, um, five rivers, you know, really rally around this cause. Um, mm-hmm. it is one of the, probably the, um, most important environmental conservation causes right now that has a broad amount of impact, um, than anything else, quite frankly, that's going on in the lower 48. Um, and so, and we need every, every voice out there, um, regardless if, if you know where the snake is right now, do mm-hmm. your homework and learn it. Mm-hmm. Regardless if you fish for salmon or steelhead in the Snake River Basin, I can guarantee that someday um, if we can recover these fish and remove these dams, that you will be here fishing for them because it is an incredible opportunity. And if not for yourself, maybe a classmate. And so, right. yeah, learn the issue, um, engage with your peers, and then uh, engage with your electeds. Definitely. And so um, all those opportunities are right there at the Lower Snake Landing page. Yeah, I think it'd be incredible within my lifetime to see, you know, these dams get removed and maybe the the four on the Columbia as well. And then just to see what that does to the ecosystem with, you know, wild salmon running all the way back up. Because I know on the Klamath um, in Washington, when that dam was removed, they saw incredible changes to the ecosystem and, and are currently still watching that play out. And it's pretty cool to watch. So I'd love to get out there and fish it one day. Yeah, the Elwa. Elwa, excuse me, excuse me. Klamath yep. isn't out yet, but yep. we're working, working on, on the Klamath. Yeah, yep. We're almost there, but the Elwa, yeah, and it has this incredible response. Um, those 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 nutrients that you refer to are those mm. uh, ocean derived nutrients that transport up through the system that so many species are so reliant on, um, and even to a pretty significant extent, our our uh, native or uh, you know, wild trout populations in those systems, um, the West Slope cutthroat throats in the majority of the system or red bands, red band trout, um, rainbow trout are, um, all relying on that nutrient infusion. And so, um, there's far reaching implications to it. None the least is, you know, recovery of a species, but, um, the recovery of a region, you know, we really didn't talk about, you know, what these fish mean to rural Idaho and these tiny little river towns that once relied on these fish for not only recreational opportunities, but economic opportunities, the, the guiding and outfitting industry in Idaho that has long since relied on these returns. And Mm -hmm. so again, just uh, spend the time, learn the issue and, and get involved any way you can. Definitely. I'll make sure to, in the show description, link the TO.org, you know, forward slash lower snake and uh, some other resources and things like that. Any um, videos or anything on YouTube that you'd recommend people watch to learn more about the issue? I know as a college student, I love watching stuff. I don't like reading things. Of course, of course you do. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yep. No. Um, yeah. So there are a bunch of different, uh, uh, video links or videos on our YouTube to you 
video or YouTube page for TU. Um, there's a couple of really great panel discussions that we've recorded. Um, there's a pretty short, there's a short film um, that we did on the Grand Ronde that talks about the uh, implication to rural communities. Um, and so there are some, some great resources there to watch. Um, it'll take a little bit of Googling, um, but it, yeah, it is a, a good resource. Um, right now that Lower Snake Landing page of ours is getting revamped. Um, and so a lot of that stuff will, will show up right directly on that Lower Snake landing page um in addition to um our call to action and our action alert that is there that that is easy to fill out and engage your electeds awesome well eric thank you very much for being on the show i really appreciate it thank you for your work as a game warden too i don't think we say that enough to game wardens because you are the frontline workers in that field of you know taking care of the resource but really appreciate what you're doing and wonderful to talk to you today yeah, thank you, Cliff, and uh, thanks for the opportunity. And uh, I will pass on that message to my uh, old fellow game wardens uh, of your your resounding appreciation for their efforts. But uh, again, thank you, and um, yeah, stay engaged. You betcha. Have a good one. Take a deep breath in your.